You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so, so excited to welcome Derek Scott to talk about his new book, Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Super, Superhero Comics. He'll be in conversation with writer and professor Ram, Ramsey Fawaz. Derek Scott is a professor of American, African-American studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Scott is the author of Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Superhero Comics. His book, Extravagant Objection, Blackness, Power, and Sexuality in the African-American Literary Imagination, was the winner of the 2011 Alan Bray Memorial Prize for Queer Studies of the Modern Language Association. Scott is also the the author of the novel Hex and Traitors to the Race and the editor of Best Black Gay Erotica. His fiction has appeared in the anthologies Freedom in This Village, Black Like Us, Giant Steps, Shade, in Central in Ancestral House, as well as in erotica collections, Flesh in the Word for and Inside Him. A fantasy genre novel, The Dream Slaves, is forthcoming from Brainstorm's Brainstorm Books Punctum. Punctum. He has published essays in uh Kaolu GLQ, The America's Review, and American Literary History, and is co-editor of the American Literature Special Issue. Queer About Comics, winner of the 2018 Best Special Issue from the Council of Editors of Learn Journals. Ramsey Fawaz is Associate Professor of, a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of The New Mutants, Superheroes and the Radical Imagination of American Comics. With Derek Scott, he co-edited a special issue of American literature titled Queer About Comics, which won the 2019 Best Special Issue of the Year Award from the Council of Editors of Learn Journals. His forthcoming book, Queer Forms, explores how 1970s movements for women's and gay liberation inspired new ways of formally representing gender and sexuality, nonconformity in the late 20th century art and pop culture. Queer Forms will be published by NYU Press in fall 2022. Derek and Ramsey, how are you both doing today? Doing really well and really excited to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting both of us. Yeah, no. thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. No, I'm excited. This is our pleasure to have both of you on. Um, from and we're all on the West Coast, right? We are. Yes. This is the first podcast in a second I think we've done where everyone's on this. Like we're it's multiple people and everyone's on the same coast, so that's makes super exciting. for a good mood, right? Yeah. Everyone's in the same space. The time is right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Derek, I think it's a little colder for you up north, right? They are, yeah. It's been a, it's been kind of chilly up here. Is it? Is it not chilly down there? It's chilly. Oh, it's, okay. it's chilly, but not. You know, during the day, it's not too bad. Yeah, we're um, we're running in the fifties these days. I mean, that's the winter. Um, <laughs> Derek, you have a reading for us today? Yes, I do. So um, this reading is from the introduction to Keeping It Unreal, and in this little segment that I'm going to read, I'm just kind of trying to think about fantasy differently than we usually think about it. So Ursula K. Le Guin's provocative story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, 
is probably most often read as a discomforting riddle about the morality of util utilitarianism. Omelas is a fantasy city or country where everyone lives happily. Unfortunately, this universal happiness depends upon the lifelong misery of one child. The causal relationship between the child's unhappiness and everyone else's commonplace ecstasy is never explained in this story, but arguably it's all the more convincingly realistic for its lack of explanation. Surely we expect happiness to be bought by someone's misery? No explanation needed, an assumption Le Guin cleverly begins to expose. But what gets me excited about the story is the challenge it throws down to our imagination. Describing Omelas, Le Guin's narrator says, as they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on about the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, no dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man nor make any celebration of joy. So Levin's claim about the treason of, of art is too harsh, I admit, if I take it up and make it into a critique of African-Americanist scholarship and intellectual endeavor, but it's not wholly inapt. Certainly regarding what we canonize and teach under the rubric African-American literature, the description has a ring of truth. For a literature defined by the near unanimity of its voices agitating, analyzing, narrating, and narrativizing political projects of emancipation and anti-racism, too great an attention to delight and joy and happiness seems like a political betrayal. For us, only the description of injustice, of torture, murder, intimidation, enslavement, rape, dispossession is political, is exigent, is real, is actually responsive to African-American history and African-American conditions. Yes, of course, we can recognize and take seriously representational and analytical strategies of humor and satire, descriptions of resistant cultural practices, locations of temporary marunage. But who is described without irony or shame, a black happy person? In the light of harsh realities, who has the time? Who has the right? I'm so accustomed to investigating, if not exactly praising, despair, pain, and evil, that if a description of black happiness appeared somewhere, I probably missed it. And if it appeared somewhere, it was a challenge to the very conception of black literature, what it is, how it must be structured to be recognized as black literature, its justification and use, its distinction from mere luxury. And so it didn't count. The happiness Le Guin's treasonous artist cannot summon the intellect or interest to engage is for the Black writer a foolishness we can't afford to indulge. Black fantasy, as I'm thinking of it then, might be aimed at snatching luxury where, as best we can see at any rate, there is none. It might be indulgent, foolish, frivolous, merely escapist, naively utopian, in some way wrong, inattentive to the real, defiant of the realist. Fantasy is generally understood unbalanced to be above all a misperception straying from accurate perception, and also therefore a misstep on the pathway to the correction of the problem, which ob obviously has to be accurately perceived in order to be solved. I'm interested in a reconstruction of the account of fantasy, its relationship to blackness. 
I want to think of how blackness engages and yet sidesteps the real problem that we think it poorly addresses. You properly, my investigation is not a fantasy as critique of the real, though fantasy does offer such critiques. My investigation, my fantasy about fantasy, is of fantasy as a mode of living and fantasy as the transformation of living and being. The argument here is for fantasy as world-making. It would be more than reasonable to consider this proposition by looking at it from a sociological slant by surveying the vast, intricate, and complex visual worlds of fan communities organized around particular works of fantasy and literature, film, comic books, etc., and the networks of participants in cosplay and video games, and the universes of ancillary text production, and the myriad kinds of fan fiction and slash fiction. But my interest is in thinking of my chain of overlapping, co-constituting objects, fantasy, Black fantasy, queer fantasy, Black queer fantasy, chiefly as philosophical enterprises. In this, I depend upon a definition of philosophy that I like, that of novelist Charles Johnson, whose novels Faith in the Good Thing and Oxfording Tale are at least in part essays of Black philosophical fiction. Black fiction that concerns itself with what Johnson identifies as the central questions of philosophical traditions. What does freedom or happiness really mean? What does it look like to be free or happy? How does one become free or happy? For Johnson, philosophy is a guide to living. Likewise, I look to Black queer fantasy as a guide of sorts, one best understood for me by recurrence to spatial metaphors. Black queer fantasy for me charts the road to, and or the sights in, a habitable imaginary. I hate the world as it is, and I'm always looking and wishing for other worlds to go to. So you might wonder if I'm advocating for what I'm going to call fantasy acts instead of what we tend to think of as action. Not at all. Fantasy acts do not require secession from other kinds of acts, though it is worth pausing to, to wonder about the differences between the results of fantasy acts and the results of other kinds of action. If an action does not result with sufficient proximity to count as an, an effect following a cause in one, someone injuring or killing someone else or depriving them of liberty, or two, someone stealing from someone else resources for living or prospering, or three, rescuing someone or yourself from a particular instance of being killed or maimed or deprived of liberty or stolen from, or four, dispensing resources to someone, or five, building something that can be seen, touched, and or entered, like a domicile, then how do we measure the consequences of, of an action? How do we become assured of its existence as distinct from the existence of other mental constructs like fantasies. If a million march on Washington is the result or the activity measurable as distinct from fantasy once it becomes, as it must, a memory, a dozen write-ups in newspapers, plans for later meetings and dreams of coalition, digital photographs online and on so many smartphone hard drives. You might wonder if this elaborate attempt to take fantasy seriously as an intellectual and political tool is like clinging to a plank of driftwood in the middle of a storm at sea. Desperate, desperate, desperate. Yes, but desperation is not disqualifying. It's the other name of necessity. And the alias of invention, or perhaps invention's twin, with necessity and desperation co-parenting, is radical imagination. The ultimate project of keeping it unreal, which must reach beyond the book's end for its achievement can't be accomplished in this book or any single book alone, is to cite whether and how Black fantasy can begin to undertake a description of ludicrous, unreal things like Black happiness, how Black fantasy might retwist the twisted significations of Blackness such that Black 
and happy is at least not a clearly oxymoronic conjunction. So Derek, you just read some of my favorite paragraphs from the entire book. And when I taught this to my graduate seminar, they were just breathtaking with this moment. Uh, I think that they were, um, they were overwhelmed by your ability to combine literary scholarship, a really, really, really deep understanding of uh, Black queer and popular cultural production um, with cultural criticism, like a very lyrical, poetic approach to thinking about the impacts of those texts on the body. Like you're really, really sitting with, what does it mean for fantasy to transform people's lives in a very visceral way? And so I have a number of questions for you, but the one that I wanted to start with is, is you know, what were the immediate visceral impacts of fantasy on your life that inspired you to write this book in some ways against the grain of your own scholarly field, against the grain of Black studies as it has been practiced for a while. Um, so I just wanted to hear about some of those inspirations. Yeah. Well, I think it's the, the chief inspiration is what um, occupies the first chapter of the book, uh, which is this image uh, and a comic that I've been obsessed with since I was a little kid. So um, when my father was in the military and we moved from the United States to Germany and I was six years old and so it's a completely different environment and we were living in a sort of small uh, German town on the army base there. Um, and it was pretty traumatic, you know, to make that change. But of course, as you're a kid, you're, you're finding ways to cope. Uh, and for some reason, I probably had a rep when 73, um, I was looking at uh, a rack of comic books in the American bookstore. And there was this Wonder Woman comic, which had Wonder Woman on it. I mean, I had some familiarity with Wonder Woman. I, I don't know that I, I had certainly never read a Wonder Woman comic before. I don't know why I would know anything about her, but there she was fighting with what turned out to be her black twin sister, Nubia, uh, a character who really didn't appear other than for about three or four issues of that, of the, uh, as it turns out, for Wonder Woman. But I was so arrested by that image um, and I got that comic book. It was the first comic book I really cherished and uh, read over and over again. And when I think back on that, what I think about is um, there was something about the unreality of that image the and the fantasy that it sparked in me uh, that was really important for me just coping with the strangeness of the life that I was living you know not surrounded by most, my father was an officer so the way the military segregates uh, its living arrangements is that the officers officers live together and the NCOs and enlisted live together uh, and most people who were African-American were enlisted or NCOs and my father was one of the few officers and so living around mostly white kids and um, you know, feeling uh, dislocated as I was and uh, all kinds of things were peculiar for me. Uh, and strangely enough, something about that comic book and Nubia as this black powerful woman uh, who has all the powers that Wonder Woman has and is essentially, you know, is her black in some way who's uh, in whatever the, the writers and uh, editors and artists conceived of as black, which was <laughs> its own problematic uh, issues. But um, that, that for me was, it helped me make sense of the world in a weird way. And that's strange because comics, of course, are not making sense of the world. It's totally unreal, unreal science. Things are not happening that are, the, the, the things are, nothing's happening there that 
really shows you what's going on in the world necessarily. But comics require you to participate in your reading. You, you have to become really imaginative. You have to imagine the connection between the panels. Uh, you need to connect the movement uh, from, imagine movement from one panel to the other, uh, connect how the, how the, the, the sequence of, of action and, and meaning. And that kind of participatory imagination was something I really needed to have in order to make sense of the, you know, essentially what I didn't know was, but the anti-Black um, homophobic world that I was living in, right? So um, that was, for me was the, it was the, in coming back to think about my obsession with that image, because I've come back to it over and over again, um, I, I realized that that was what I wanted to write about. I wanted to try to think about what is happening when we fantasize like that? What, how can I give an account of that? And what's the significance of it? Obviously, it's not, it doesn't transform the world. It doesn't create revolution. It doesn't necessarily map any particular kind of utopian arrangement of human beings, but it does something I think that is important, which is that as you're investing your energy and imagination into uh, whatever is sparked by what's there on the comic book page or, or the fantasy literature, or whatever it is that you're engaging with, um, but that does something that transforms something within us for the moments that we're doing it. And also as we do it collectively, that is when we gather in fan communities, exactly there's a transformation uh, that's going on at least in the moment for us as we're doing it, even if it isn't something that becomes concrete. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think uh, my, my response, I wanna say like, oh, but sometimes it does, right? But yeah. sometimes it causes a revolution. Yes. Sometimes it rearranges people. And I think that's kind of the power of the fantasy act is the, uh, as you describe it, right? The ability to project outward through the imagination for, to, to imagine a different world, right? To you, there's a beautiful moment in your book where you say, how is it possible that we've produced so many dystopian fantasies about if the South has won the Civil War, mm. right? If the Nazis had won World War II, but we barely have any stories about what if slavery never happened, mm. right? What if anti-Blackness never happened? What if racism never happened? And the ability to imagine that what if that is so utopian can actually collide with people's psyches and might inspire people in ways that we can't measure exactly which I think is really the power of fantasy, the ability to create unpredictable effects. And so that kind of leads to my second question about the way you read, the way you interpret culture. Because I think that in many ways, the way that you interpret these moments like Nubia, like the way you read all of this pleasure, desire and, and possibility in representations of highly sexualized black uh, queer superheroes, you aren't taking the traditional road of saying like, oh, well, Nubia is a failed representation because she didn't ultimately get her due. And it's really just a representation of anti-Blackness or these representations of Black queer superheroes are all just racist, sexualized stereotypes. You're saying like they're doing something far more than that. And you're giving them, you're generous as a reader. You're giving these representations a lot more possibility. And I think that's really beautiful in a moment when most cultural representations are being kind of like subjected to an either or. They're good or they're bad. They support Black people or they're not. They support anti-racism or they're not. So could you talk a little bit more about why you read in that way and how? Like what's the process by which you read or interpret um, a, a cultural, a Black cultural fantasy? Well, 
I think part of the re the way that I read just comes from the fact. I mean, so I guess a couple different ways to answer that question. One of them is to say that I try to read them, or I do read them in this kind of positive, generative way. But I read them in a positive, generative way with the recognition of the anti-blackness or the racist perspectives or the homophobia or the misogyny that's baked into the creations themselves. So, you know, as a black queer reader of comics or superhero comics in particular from young age to adult, um, you know, you're, there are a lot of problems with reading from that perspective because mostly you're looking at a long history of racist depictions where uh, you've had minstrel characters in the beginning of the uh, superheroes in the 1940s and you then you have a long period of absence um, or characters who are secondary or characters who um, just you know kind of get killed uh, or somehow menaced um, before you get the black superhero who remains uh, a distinct minority amongst those characters. And of course, you have a long history too of since Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent, which argued that uh, Batman and Robin's relationship was covertly homosexual and was recruiting homosexual uh, behavior of, of its young readers. You've had a long um, history of the suppression, active suppression of queer content uh, or active uh, attempts to suppress queer readings even of comics. But from that position, you're always reading that it's from a Black queer position or from a queer position or Black position. You're always reading with a certain hunger um, that because of that participatory imagination that comics encourages, it'll, it's that that imagination can flourish uh, around and despite and even against the limits of the of what's being depicted on the page and in the form right so um for me that was just the way i had to read and so that is the way that i read uh because i'm always reading with some desire for something different than what is uh and that's even true if i'm reading realistic fiction or whatever, I'm, I'm still looking for ideas and thoughts and different perspectives that I, that I don't necessarily see reflected in daily life. Um, so that's, uh, that, that just to me, that's part of what it is to be a minoritarian, one might say, reader. Uh, that is that you're, you're always uh, needing to kind of push your way through the cracks and, the, and find uh, certain um, platforms to spring off of, you know, that are there that aren't necessarily there uh, in ways that are by themselves all that wonderful, uh, but your what you do with them can be pretty wonderful for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that rather than kind of smoothing over the way you read when you were younger, you have actually cultivated it into kind of like a way of thought, uh, which which of course Eve Sedgwick would call a reparative mode yes. of reading, yes. right? And but you're doing a really updated version of it. And that kind of leads me, I'm going to ask you, I feel like this is a, kind of like a, like a tough question, but um, <laughs> because it's, it's scaling upward to contemporary politics. Mm. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, does contemporary, do you think an, contemporary anti-racist cultural politics like needs more fantasy or black studies needs more fantasy? Like if, if, if all of these different areas where people are really engaged in the hard work of dismantling white supremacy, do you think that some of these areas really need some more fantasy and fantasy acts? And what would it mean if they took fantasy more seriously? Um, I, I'm, yeah. Well, that is a hard question. And I, I would be reluctant to prescribe uh, anything in terms of what 
black studies need because there are all kinds of you know there are all kinds of things going on with it and all kinds of things going on in uh in black cultural politics and in activist politics so um i would say that there's a way especially in black studies um of thinking about fantasy as something which is um almost kind of an opiate of the masses i mean in the sense that uh, it's something which is you know obviously the way that um racism functions is that there are all kinds of pernicious fantasies projected onto bodies that are designated as black um and um that means that fantasy has a really deleterious effect and it's not it's something you'd want to argue against you know you know you want to to dismantle fantasies uh, and a lot of anti-racist work is kind of about dismantling various kinds of, of fantasies that we live in. i think that's exactly what should be happening um on the other hand, I do think that there is some real value to um, using fantasy as an instrument and as a, as a refuge, um, at, at least first, but then also, as you were talking about, as a, as a kind of playing around, even when you think you can't play, uh, to imagine things differently um, that may then manifest itself in or that, that, that may then spark some kind of manifestation of a different kind of living, right? So fantasy is a really fecund tool for that, right? Um, and I do think there are, there are plenty of people, you know, in, in Black studies, uh, in African-American scholarship who are really interested in Afrofuturism and um, all kinds of things that are speculative and, and, and for the, precisely those reasons, uh, because it does provide a refuge and also a kind of way of, of kind of trying out different possibilities in uh in the world um for me i i kind of you know i think that a really good thinker about this is ernst block you know whose work i really became uh aware of because of jose munoz's use of it uh years ago in his book um cruising utopia but i he talks about how there's a way where the world is structured to say that there are a number of things which are impossible but those impossible things are precisely the things that we need um, and they are possible it's just that we've structured a kind of uh, a set of what's real and what's fantastic and what's fantastic gets dismissed um, but that thing that's supposed to be dis that's dismissed and considered to be totally you know impossible isn't necessarily that's it's a, it's a kind of a failure of imagination a failure of social imagination a failure of political imagination uh, and I do think that's a recognizing that it's really important. And that actually got, um, yeah, Lance, did you want to dive in? <laughs> no, yeah, I was like, oh, let me get in before it's too late, right? Um, thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation too, guys. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask both of you right now is um, your history with uh, like, specifically black uh queerness in fantasy in uh like all contexts so like specifically i want to hear about your comic book context see if you could share those but whatever context you want to talk about but even in like you know i was having a conversation with a friend earlier this week about how uh comic books specifically are inherently queer and they were like wow how is that like a thing and it's just like 
between the artwork, you know, the intensity, we're talking about Batman and Robin, kind of that uh, relationship there. But there was a lot, I mean, Batman and Superman always had this. Uh, there was always this like male ego and, you know, they always had intense relationships with each other. Did you, is this something that you picked up in your history of this too? It was a big question there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Answer whatever part of that question you would like to. Well, I think Ramsey really um, describes very well how comics are queer. So I'm going to let you talk about that, Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like my hobby horse. But Derek and I have yes. really thought through this very, very seriously because I think the stakes of talking about comics as queer are very high because it is a cultural, it's a medium that can actually make accessible to millions of people the possibility of another way of life that is not mm. organized by heterosexual norms, by, you know, um, white supremacy, by all of, you know, by gender norms, et cetera. But, you know, I'm not somebody who will ever say that any medium or any cultural form like film or literature is inherently anything, right? Mm. Mediums are just empty vessels. They're just different ways to tell different stories. Comics, mm. though, lend themselves to queerness. They're not inherently queer, but there is something about them that is very queer-like. And I would name three things. One, which I've said many times in my work, is their serial quality. The fact that they are stories that self-consciously show you the world in pieces. They take the world that seems like a seamless unit and mm -hmm. they split it into a million fragments. So you're, you're always seeing a story in different panels. The panels are unfolding over multiple pages. They're, those are unfolding across multiple issues. So the world as it is presented to you in any given panel can always be upset, undone, rewritten, revised in the next mm -hmm. panel, the next issue. It's a world of contingency and open-endedness. So if queerness is about you know, going in a diagonal line away from norms, comic books are always breaking norms of temporality, of time and history and memory. That's one. Mm -hmm. I think superhero comic books are, of course, are about, specifically, if we're gonna talk about that genre, are about superhumans. They're about people with added something added, something transformed about them. And that doesn't necessarily always make them better. It makes them different. And so superheroes multiply difference. They're queer in that they are divergent from normative humanity. So even the most traditionally kind of white, masculine, cis, quote unquote, straight hero, Superman is a very queer figure, right? Everybody says this, he's an immigrant alien from another planet. He is distinguished from other human beings, et cetera. And finally, I would say superhero comic books demand cross-identification as Anthony Michael D'Agostino writes a lot about, especially with the X-Men character Rogue, somebody who can touch others and absorb their psychology into herself Comic books really, superhero comic books are not interested in like the discourse of appropriation. They're like, you should appropriate people's identities. That's the only way you could possibly know who they are. You should yeah. cross boundaries, right? You should, you should jump out of yourself and be in the world of someone else. So I know for myself, very similar to Derek, my first great experience of connecting with a superhero was Storm from the X-Men. You know, someone radically different from me. And I never for a moment thought, well, she's a black woman, then that's not mine. I'm not allowed, you know, to cross the boundary between a Middle Eastern queer immigrant American's identity and a black Kenyan woman superhero. It didn't, I was like, of course I can. 
the imaginative realm of, of this comic book gave me that space. And as I grew older, I learned like, well, what does it look like to do that ethically and do that thoughtfully, you know? But of course, this is a fictional character. So of course I'm gonna play with her experience and her identity. So those are three ways in which I think comics really lend themselves to queerness. Yeah. And um, you talked about, I, I wanna ask Derek, um, what was, was there a superhero like that for you that like, you know, the, your storm? Well, Storm, actually there were a number. So Nubia was the first. Um, yeah. And as, as I said, she disappeared pretty quickly. Like I, I read mm -hmm. the three the three issues <laughs> that she was in and there, there she was yeah. and that was it. Um, but definitely Falcon of Captain American, mm -hmm. Falcon was something that drove, because at first when I was reading, you know, as a kid in the seventies, especially when I was over in Germany, I was drawn towards those black faces that you'd see mm -hmm. uh, on the covers if you could see them. Um, and so Falcon came up and then Luke Cage uh, started. So I was reading him, um, mm -hmm. but I was most excited actually about Storm, uh, you know, in, when she came out in like so 76 or 77, uh, mm -hmm. just visually. And of course, again, powerful black woman who's doing all these controls the weather and uh, is amazing in all these different ways. Um, so I was, and I, I mean, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is I, we often think about superheroes particularly um as being these uh templates for identification or there's so that we're that there's a kind of modeling that we do do as we're looking at superheroes and that was exactly you know why frederick wortham was like oh my god this is horrible they're all kinds of they're doing all these violent things they're vigilantes and we don't want our kids to be uh, modeling this behavior and i don't you know I, I think more of what Rancy is talking about in terms of that cross-identification cross describes more of what goes on, what went on for me, and I think probably goes on for most people, which is there's something that's not necessarily about identifying to model. It's just, it's kind of just trying out these different possibilities for who you could be, and you could be zipping around from one character to the, to the other. Um, so, uh, you know, I loved Storm, but I love the X-Men comic. And so I could also be really interested in Wolverine for completely different reasons or um, Nightcrawler. I mean, there were just all these different characters that I mm -hmm. could find uh, really powerful and um, that facilitated my imagination in some way. And I mean, I feel like the X-Men, the, the similarities there too, with both of you finding like Storm from the X-Men. I mean, the some may say the best, I mean, me would say the best X-Men mm -hmm. character. Um, but also like, yeah, there's something in it. When I, you guys were asking that, when I asked you both of you that, I was like, who was mine? Who was that for me? And I was just like, oh, I think weirdly was Batman. Something about a withdrawn withdrawn mm. character who even as a superhero he had like something different than like superman everyone loves superman you see superman you're just like wow a hero you see batman you're like wow <laughs> run <laughs> like like he was always misunderstood there he would always go from a villain to a or not a, he would always be seen as like an anti-hero to a hero back to an anti-hero to a hero and there was always there was always a lot of um debate on like his moral and ethics and there's something just like oh wow I get that someone who's withdrawn like that now I feel differently <laughs> there's a lot of difference differently to uh, different ways to feel about Batman now but like you know younger you feel that but no Storm especially so though too I mean Storm deserves 
uh, so much praise. But the next she thing does. I want to ask you, I mean, and you know what? Not she doesn't get enough. She doesn't get enough. Um, but the next thing I want to ask you, Derek, because this book feels like something that like the origins of it doesn't start with like you like what five years ago waking up saying oh I have an idea this feels like something you know mm. even from a child you probably like had some sort of idea that started where you were like hmm I'm noticing something here while I'm mm. reading these genres that is missing or that is I need I need more of myself do you have specific memories of like you know maybe like where this uh novel came from before it even our novel sorry this book came from even before like you know you knew it was going to be a book well I mean it's 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 hard for me to locate a particular moment I can mm -hmm. think about how I've been reading comics mm -hmm. so much you know since I was <laughs> seven or eight uh there was a break for me probably for about you know 15 years or so from the mid 80s through the 90s where I didn't read superhero comics at all all I read was uh uh, Love and Rockets and Sandman, uh, mm. which are both fantastic, wonderful yes. comics that I could say a lot about both of them, and especially Love and Rockets, because that's one of my very favorite comics. Uh, but I just spent a lot of time, invested a lot of myself and energy into these adventures that were taking place in these comics. And I can remember particularly when the Phoenix story unfolded in X-Men and how I was just riveted by that story. Um, and in part, again, for me, there was something where a powerful woman is something that particularly would draw me into a story, um, even though, of course, comics are replete with powerful men. Uh, and so Phoenix and Storm were kind of, um, both creations of Chris Claremont uh, were kind of uh, exceptions to the rule. But I just remember being drawn to that and it really staying with me as just a, um, I, I can't say that I would, return and fantasize about Phoenix in some sort of way, but the memory of the story would then find its kind of reflections and all kinds of responses I might have to other things in the world or other works. Like I always connected uh, Phoenix to Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. I mean, it just, it, just that kind of echo would happen. Um, and so I've always had this investment in reading comics. And in fact, the very first thing when I was in graduate school that I published an article on was on Love and Rockets. You know, so it was the first, and then I, you know, got my PhD in literature and I went away from comics, uh, really kind of until Ramsey's book came out. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a minute, I can go back to this because I was always really interested in it and wanted to think further about it uh, and to think what, to think about what the experience was for me and what the implications of that experience might be uh, more broadly uh, in terms of the in fantasy investments in superhero comics. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's something you could say is sort of a waste of time. In fact, there used to be a comic book store that I went to in New Haven when I was there uh, that had a, a slogan that said, an amusing waste of time was how they describe what the, what comics were. And that's the way that I hear them, I did hear them spoken of before sort of the advent of comic studies. Um, and I felt, sort of bad, I guess, or maybe a little ashamed uh, about my interest in them and my abiding interest. But the more I thought about it, the more it, it seems that, no, there's something important here. And it's not just a waste of time. It's, it's 
it's something that is significant. Uh, and as I talk about it in the book, it's, it's a way of being. Um, it isn't really a way of doing, right? There's like, you're not doing that much in the world. It's, um, but it is a way of being. And I find that fascinating and important for me. And I mean, yeah, that's, I feel like you're gonna, there's an audience who's, who is listening to this being like, yeah, like, that's it. That's perfectly vocalized how I feel about this too. Well, I was just going to say, if we have a minute, like this is part of what I love so much about Derek's work is its existential dimension. Because I think that Derek is thinking about the idea that fantasy is one of the mediums through which we make sense of our appearance in the world. Like, and what I mean is like the fact that we, as the phenomenologist would say, that like the one universal reality that we do share is that we appear that we're just like present in this shared universe and we have sense organs to be able to register our appearances. And fantasy is kind of one of the ways in which we make sense of our relationship to that world. Who will we be to others? How will we relate? You know, to go back to the Phoenix saga, which I've written about extensively, um, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, I understand fundamentally why that is such a moving story, both the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix saga, it is really a deep meditation on the nature of healing with others. It is about a universe unraveling literally at the seams. Like that's the conceit of the story. And Jean Grey and Storm knit together the fabric of the universe. These two women reach out across differences of race and class and identity and experience. And they clasp hands and they knit back the fabric of the universe. And there's so many things to love about that story. Like it's, it's disco diva visuals, it's beautiful, epic lyrical fight sequences. But at the end, it moves us so deeply because it is about the existential idea of like, how can we heal? the universe together. Like that's such a beautiful thing. And the, just like the, the, the last thing I wanna say just related to what Derek was, what you asked Derek basically like what inspired you to write the book. I almost wanna give advice to like academics and other aspiring writers out there that like the best scholarly books, the best works of cultural criticism, they start with the like really idiosyncratic weirdo <laughs> who's like, I noticed this thing when I read this, that it seems like nobody else noticed. Like, that's so like, I, you know, this is so fascinating about this story, or this is so amazing about this cultural phenomenon. But the people who do the best scholarship and cultural criticism, they figure out how to leap from their own idiosyncrasy to these larger existential questions that are shared by lots of people. And I think the beauty of Derek's book is that every chapter is grounded so deeply in this like weird, idiosyncratic, unusual moment of encounter that he has with a specific black fantasy character, a certain kind of story, a certain genre, and then his ability to scale upward to say, actually, this is about what it means to exist in the world. Like that's astonishing. And I think a lot of people don't get past their own idiosyncrasy. They're just kind of like stuck in their own obsessions. And I think that's kind of the beauty of keeping it unreal is the ability to scale and share his own fantasies with other, with his readers. And I mean, it's so talking about even like the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix, and that's so true hearing like how the these storylines had such depth to them. Like I was just currently reading um, the, the Young Avengers Children's Crusades. Uh, oh, Young Avengers is amazing. Yeah, Young that. Avengers is so good. I mean, yeah. I 
I but the children's crusade storyline specifically which is I feel like it's so interesting that the young Avengers get to kind of conclude this huge Marvel like uh, tragedy that's like leading from the house of M, M day, all of these things in our have to ask the question, what is, what does justice mean? Or what does like, not forgiveness, but like the idea of like having this person who did this thing, we have to reckon with it. And as Mm -hmm. like, it's the Avengers and the X-Men all being like, we're angry, but what do we do to like, what do we do now? Like, do we, do we, let her make up for her mistakes uh by her being the scarlet witch do we let her die do we kill her do we because she's could do this again do we try to understand why she's doing this how she's doing this it's so in there's this idea of like trying to you know not villainize someone but understand the intention behind them and it's just i mean that's the power of like storylines like this and this is like a, a young Avengers seems like oh not you wouldn't get that storyline from this group but like you do and it's one of the right. most important stories there um something I want to ask both of you too um especially for like a lot of um stories that are happening now there's a lot of one of the thing comic books I think love to do especially specifically DC and Marvel is reboot a storyline or mm-hmm. reboot characters like make them change the storyline and I mean some things stay consistent I feel like there's there's like a there's mostly consistent stories but they uh every once in a while like to be like oh well all the earths are colliding new universe uh, right. and they change the storyline they're like they they try to update it in a way too where it's like oh this is this we didn't realize that uh this X-Men's character story really was about this. Let's dive into that. Does that, you know, resonate in a lot of ways with your book? Because I feel like I see that a lot when I'm thinking about like what comic books like were like when I first started reading them in the mm-hmm. early 2000s is when I started to now where it's like, I'm seeing a lot more in media and I feel like everyone like it's not just the comic book nerds at this point it's everyone are seeing like the Miles Morales the Riri Williams the Kamala the all of these storylines that they wouldn't have seen what 20 years ago right well this this goes back to what Ramsey was talking about in terms of the serial nature of comics uh, because and this specifically is something that happens in superhero comics is you know because there is this kind of especially from the 1960s onward with Marvel, uh, but even with DC, this sense that there is all this time. So you're talking about comics that began in the 1940s or the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're talking you know, 50, 70 years ago and 50, 70 years of storytelling. And with Marvel, they've wanted to make it all seem as though um, it's all connected. Like every single thing that has happened for each month, for each comic, has happened and they can refer back to it in some way. So there's this long, long history. Um, DC, a little bit differently, they keep doing these sort of massive reboots, uh, but Marvel does it in their own way too. Uh, but it's it's kind of reckoning with that, that whole idea that you can keep retelling the story, but tell it differently each time because there's been such a long history of it, you can pick out different elements and reconfigure them so that 
you can, you know, you've had Tim Drake, who's the second Robin around for, I, I don't know, 30, 40 years at this point. And now he's bisexual. Like, so it's like, there's like, it's a, you know, you just, you do a reboot, you do something, you pick out something that may not really have been there before in an explicit way, but may have been implicit or was something that in fact, say queer readers might have invested in and somehow even communicated to the creators in one way or another, their letters or whatever. And, and then you get some, this sort of change. Um, and so there's been all this, this sort of responses on the part of those two companies, particularly uh, DC and Marvel to um, a desire to increase their readership, you know, sort of make more money um, by having characters who are more reflective of a diverse world. Um, but, and that part of it is, you know, uh, there's nothing particularly to praise about that part of it. Um, but for us as readers, it can be something that is really wonderful and, you know, liberating and, um, again, important in how we imagine ourselves and our being in the world. Yeah, I think this question is so important. Um, and I think Derek has touched upon something. Derek, you didn't use this language, but I think you're also the distinction between what's called retconning, meaning uh, retroactive continuity, going mm. back and re and saying like, oh, it turned out that Superman had a dog when he was a kid that was mm. also super powered, right? Mm. There's a difference between that and rebooting, which is the elimination or the erasure of an entire strand of uh, of history. So for instance, in the late 80s, when Crisis on Infinite Earths happened, they eliminated the entire history of the Legion of Superheroes, the longest running superhero team book in the history of comics up until that time. I would say I love retconning. I think it's a beautiful continual expansion of universes to say like, well, it turned out that he was straight. Now he's bisexual. Like, I like that. I think that the elimination of entire storylines, however, I'm very suspicious of it because my own reading has been that Marvel and DC at some point by the 90s had created such rich, diverse, expansive universes and they couldn't handle, they couldn't be accountable to their own diversity, to the mm -hmm. fact that they had produced so many kinds of characters and now really had to, the screws were being put to them to really take seriously the diversity they had created. And what did Marvel do by the early 2000s? They were like, let's eliminate 90% of the mutants on the planet, right? Like there's just too many. And I think this was really a feint. Like this was really a way to dodge the question of diversity that they themselves had opened up. I think it's very dangerous to reduce or narrow fictional worlds. Why not simply keep expanding? Which I think now weirdly the TV shows are doing. Now they're obsessed with multiverses, right? Like what I love about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, the movies, which I'm now writing about in my own work, is that they're basically saying, look, if there's infinite Earths, at some point or another, every human being on the planet has been Spider-Man, right? Like hmm. in every genre, which is an amazing conceit that doesn't require you to eliminate, reduce, erase. It's an additive multiplicative um, logic, which is really what fantasy acts are about. And I think that that's really important because it means reckoning with genuine diversity. My own thing, the last thing I would say is that like, I just wish that they would like be lovingly retire characters. I mean, I stopped reading the X-Men because I thought I love Storm as she is. She's been given so much rich history and I don't need a story that's gonna ruin her character. 
right? I don't need another story about her. Like she can still exist in the universe and I would love new characters to, to take her place in the firmament. And I'm intrigued by the inability of the comic companies to like let go in, in a serious way of any of these characters without killing them, right? Like the only way they do that is to kill them and then resurrect them. And I'm like, why don't you just move on? Like, what if we just retired that and invented a new team that was did something else? Um, and so I, I like seeing invention rather than narrowing or reduction. Well, I think you're right about the, the like MCU doing that because one of the best things about it is that these heroes grow old and, or the, sorry, the heroes, the actors grow old and they can't That's do so these true. characters anymore. Right. And so they have to, they're forced to move on. They're forced to say, oh, we can't, have iron man anymore in all these movies what's next what's what's happening who's gonna take up the mantle mm -hmm. in in their own specific way but also even when you're talking about the spider-verse one of my in the original spider-verse comic like series one of my favorite things that i saw happen was that they one of the universes was the spider-man and his amazing friends universe mm -hmm. and he just they just murder them all and i'm just like this is i was like a part of me was like that's devastating but you know what thank god they acknowledged that this universe existed mm -hmm. because where like where do we get that usually but and i think there's what you're saying to the retcon versus the reboot do you do you think that there's like a sort of like a hybrid model of that happening right now where like I feel like some older characters or some older iterations of characters are being brought back as like oh a new universe I think they're doing like a Batman 89 series right now they're they like they're saying oh wait there was something there was something here that we did not finish because we felt either that it was too big for us or that we didn't want to uh, deal with the consequences of like maybe the lack of diversity or all these that we're doing but like I do think they're returning to that to kind of you know make up for it in some sort of way I do think that comics right now it seems like we're both Marvel and DC are in a phase or they're trending more towards what Ramsey is talking about is is multiplying um uh universes and alternate uh, superheroes and they're just more and more sort of dimensions that keep being added. Um, and that does allow for, if you have an alternate universe, say Spider-Man or an alternate universe storm, you can retcon in the sense of, you just have a sort of different origin as it were. It's, it's similar, but it's different. And you find a different way to emphasize some, some sort of different aspect of the character. Um, and so they do seem to be doing that now. I mean, that, that wasn't what DC was doing when it had the first crisis of infinite earths because then what they were doing is they had a huge they had a, a whole bunch of different alternate earths they had all these different heroes all these different versions of batman and superman etc um and they just were as i think as i'm just saying they were overwhelmed by it uh and wanted it to all be um narrowed and so they created this thing that destroyed all of that and then they brought it back because you know in the 2000s they started bringing it back because they uh they realize that that actually this is a, a rich vein of storytelling so they they, they wanted to to mine it and also it allowed for um more fans to be invested the more characters you have the more fans you can have that's I and mean, that's kind of a, a calculus i think they finally figured out uh and that's the way it's going these days 
No, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, you can use the example, for instance, of the new Spider-Man, which I have not watched, the live action in which Andrew Garfield comes back and he was the last Spider-Man in the last trilogy. And there's been three trilogies. And what they're suggesting basically is that all of these Spider-Mans exist in their own dimensions. And one doesn't need to be eliminated for the present one that we're focusing on to be here. And I, again, I think that that's totally fascinating. And I agree with Derek that like the, the more you multiply characters, the more you have opportunities for audiences to link in. You need a certain amount of um, shared reality in order for the, these fictional universes to cohere loosely but it doesn't need to be that deep or that continuous. So like the word continuity itself is really just another word for orthodoxy, mm. right? Continuity is this word that is used often in comics to talk mm. about like, well, you said this in, in issue number 12 about the Fantastic Four, and now you changed your mind in issue 1974 and we can't handle it because like these things have to square the elimination of entire fictional universes is about wanting all these elements of a comic book to line up. Well, honey, it's all made up. The Fantastic Four are not real people. <laughs> They're made up. Like they can, one of them can turn into jelly, right? Like one of them can project invisible shields. Like if, you know, in issue 12, they said one thing in issue 74, it changed. Like it changed because people made something else up. And the need for continuity that is strict, um, as opposed to continuity that is just like sense making, right? Like we need some kind of sense making to, to like understand a story. Uh, it can't be completely discontinuous, but the need for strict continuity is really often about maintaining orthodoxies, about like, I want the universe to be in this one way. And that is deeply antithetical to the very idea of fantasy which is about the endless spinning outward of imaginative possibilities into an indefinite future. That's it. And one good example of uh, a sort of retconning, I don't know if it's really retconning, it's, it's just retelling the, it is a retconning, I guess, in terms of retelling the origin story um, in a way that opens up the work to greater audiences and gives a sort of different emphasis is Black Panther. Because, you know, Black Panther totally. created uh, as this, you know, the, the innovation of Black Panther was he's the first Black superhero and that he's coming from this uh, this African nation that has a bunch of huts and everything, but also has a super technological um, uh, Kirby drawn devices and they have all this sort of science, the super science that they have that Black Panther has access to. But there was really no thinking about what it would really mean to have had a African nation uh, that was that had this super science. Um, that African nation didn't really look that much different than the Western imagination of African nations, which is ridiculous on its own, which is just you know the kind of Tarzan view of things. Um, and then you know you have some really good stuff and interesting stuff that Don McGregor does uh, in the '70s, but then Reginald Hudlin comes along in the 2000s and really does this retcon that was fantastic. Which is wait a minute. So if Wakanda has the super science, um, then they could never have been colonized. They could never have had to deal with colonialism. They could, their people could never have been enslaved. How did all this happen? So let's think about that. What's the, what's the, and what are the implications of that? And that has been the way that Black Panther has, from that retconning, Black Panther has taken off from that because the, the movie, the wonderful movie is really 
has it owes a lot to Reginald Hudlin's redoing of Black Panther. It it really takes up that that reimagination of, of Black Panther and spins it into its own version of it, um, and which people responded to with rapture. I mean, including myself, you know. So um, and partly for political reasons, like partly it's a kind of you know, political imagination that we're seeing up on screen with that version of Black Panther. So there's there's an example of where uh, a retconning that happens in the comics really does something uh, wonderful, really, you know, that kind of that opens up different avenues of imagination and possibility um, that doesn't seem to just sort of serve some, you know, commercial uh, uh, object, some sort of commercial goal. No, that, I mean, wow. I, in that, in that for Black Panther specifically, especially with the, you know, po the popularity of it, the change of it, I mean, with, uh, a lot of people's introduction of it of black the character being from the MCU and now like them going forward without the titular character it's it's going to be interesting to see how they're even going to like retcon that into being how does Wakanda exist now without us seeing this character yeah. um, but the last we have to wrap up sadly and I truly mean sadly because god I can <laughs> go on for hours talking to you both but the last thing, I kind of want you guys to, if you don't mind, doing a little bit of my job for me and to the listeners, you know, hand selling some either uh, black, black or honestly, any sort of like um, non-white, uh, either superhero character or just graphic novel uh, stories that you've recent, more recent than um you know, more recent stories that you found or even like um, authors that you've, that you would like are reading all of their stuff right now that's coming out or even um, in the fantasy genre as a whole, there's any works that you want to recommend the listeners and me, please. <laughs> wow, that's always hard when people ask those questions for me because my mind, strangely as a literature professor, I forget titles, I forget author <laughs> names, like I forget it all until I, I go look at it again. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, there's been some great stuff that I've been reading in terms of fantasy literature that I really like. Um, mm -hmm. What comes to mind immediately is Nnedi Okorafor's uh, series, the Akata Witch series, like this is not, because she's got a bunch of others that like the Benti series and the Who Fears Death and that, that are the more, I think are sort of more recognized. Uh, the Akata Witch is a kind of young adult series, um, but it's about this uh, Nigerian girl who is, um, she's albino or she, she's very light skinned. And, she, and so, it, but this, this difference that she, ha that she has is kind of a mark of how she's a witch uh, and she becomes initiated into this whole um, society of witches that are not just Nigerian, but all over the world. And she goes on these various adventures and I love it. It's just, it's a really fun, uh, really fun, really interesting um, series that she's written. And there are a bunch of other things. I just, you know, I have to literally go look at my bookshelf and remember what they are. But of course, stuff that uh, just leaps to mind. I always struggle with this too, just because we're always having to read so much for our research. And I happen to actually be writing a paper right now about straight men in feminist 
theory. So I'm literally doing the opposite. I'm like reading a bunch of stuff written by straight men uh, mm. about feminism. But I will say, um, I think that when Storm got her own miniseries, it is honestly one of the coolest, most interesting things that I ever saw in the X-Men franchise. And so that was written by Greg Pak a little while mm. back around mm. like 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. It was collected in two volumes, Storm Volume 1, Make It Rain, and Storm Volume 2, Bring the Thunder. And I was amazed to see that a character that had had about a 60-year life, such an incredibly complex plot of her development, that they could do something completely new and exciting with her. And it was so cool to me that you had an Asian-American writer writing... Um, this famous black kind of feminist figure and really kind of thinking through what it would mean if she existed in the era of Black Lives Matter. And like, what would what would she mean symbolically to that movement? And it was it's done in a way that is not pandering, that is so honest and so beautiful. And it's very much deeply, because some of the best stories about Storm, of course, are about her relationships with women. It is, um, remind me, Derek, uh, is it Mariko, uh, who is, is a very famous uh, Japanese character, this Japanese ninja in it? Oh, Yukio. Yukio, thank you, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It is, about, I'm thinking of Wolverine, I think I'm thinking of Wolverine's uh, wife earlier, yes, right, earlier yeah. in the Mariko, series. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, in the Kitty Pride Wolverine. But it's a lot about her relationship to this uh, Japanese assassin, Yukio, and, and, and their long, long friendship. And I just found it brilliant. I thought it was great. And I think his work in general is really, really amazing in comics. It's also drawn beautifully um, and renders Storm in a new way to, to readers. And I mean, a character like Storm, who I feel like the that series is still like a lot of ongoing stuff from that is still the ripples of that is still happening today in 2022 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um with her character i mean recently her becoming the regent of uh mars yeah oh that's so interesting and she's and she's just i mean with everything that happened to like still have her be so significant in that way with everything happening in the new x-men series too Mm -hmm. is just i mean well i also love that when she was introduced she was supposed to be like 17 right yeah and by the time kitty pride comes into the picture she's like 19 and kitty pride is like 12 or 13 these years mm-hmm. is like unbelievable ages <laughs> and so now like 60 years out she's supposed to be like what like 33 <laughs> like that's like the fantasy idea mm-hmm. and i kind of love like the, the the her ability to be young and older and mature all at the same time always kind of wrapped mm-hmm. up in one perpetually yes mm-hmm. no i mean what great answers i am so excited to like i mean um for both of these i i know more about the storm but um that series i need to get into so thank you derek for that recommendation um well thank you both for this episode it's been fantastic to have you both on thank to you. hear you talk it's been wonderful no thank you for inviting pleasure. us it's really been great it's my pleasure i this book uh so it's so important to me and to the listeners um this book is as this episode airs now and in the store it's go get a copy go read through it to all the comic book fans out there you want to you want to you want to pick it up especially i mean i feel like the 
queer black and brown kids have never really gotten you know their moment until recently to you know shine in comics so you know go read about the history of that go see what why it's so important to um you know why this is so important now the work that's been happening to get there it's uh it's great um Derek and Ramsey do you have any last things you would like to say to our listeners or just like you know the independent bookstore community Ramsey you're probably better at that than I I'll let me think about it for a second you know I, I this is gonna sound really random I just think you should read everything and anything like I I just <laughs> like I wish people were more polyglot readers I'm looking at my mm. students who I love and who are so exciting and smart and more politically engaged than ever before but then also they're just convinced like kind of like thinking about your question they're just like I should only be reading queer people of color from indigenous communities and like that's the only way that I'm going to get something important and I'm like I'm sitting here reading like some white straight cis men writing some of the best feminist theory I have ever read you know go read political theory go read manifestos go back every social movement you think you know go back and read the original documents you're going to sit here and talk about intersectionality go read the kambahi river collective statement in its original form you know go back and read white feminists who have some amazing things to say go back and read asian american feminism you know like just read everything and don't make any assumptions in advance like you think you know everything before you've read it. I'm continually surprised by the texts that are written by people I would never, like I often talk, which is random, I often talk about the Southern Reach trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer, this white straight male author who has written like one of the most astonishingly diverse, beautiful fantasy yeah. universes all of the characters are mostly like women and queer people and people of color and it's all unremarkable and he does it with such finesse. I'm just continually surprised when I allow myself to read widely. Um, and I would love for people to do that and draw on everything. And, and it circles back to Derek's book, which is that Derek in, that, in this new book is never hemmed in by any assumption about who we should be thinking about when we think about fantasy. He reads everyone and he talks about all of their ideas alongside his own. And it's that's what makes for such a rich book. All these people you would never think would speak to black fantasy, they have something to say to black fantasists. And that's amazing. And to piggyback on that, I would say, because I agree with everything you said, Ramsey. Um, and I, I think reading widely is so, uh, to me, it's just enriching and it feels like it's the thing which we have to do in a certain sense um, to not feel that you can't go to something because you know the person has said or done something that is egregious. I mean, there are plenty of things that uh, egregious statements that many people have said over the years. One of my favorite writers is Virginia Woolf. She says some pretty awful racist stuff in, <laughs> in a couple of, of books. You know, that doesn't mean though that there isn't something useful, interesting, powerful, transformative, possibly within any of these works. So reading them, reading widely, is to me seems like it's a, it's 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 absolutely necessary. No, I mean like that. Yeah, wow, that's so, because that conversation, I mean, working in a bookstore, 
you hear that conversation from like customers who are coming in and um, about what we should be reading. What should we be reading right now? What's the right thing to be reading? And then it's like, read everything. There's so many things. Exactly. There's no should. It's what can I be reading right now? Rules are the death of fantasy. A rule. This is what everybody on the like we just as much as anybody else on any like conservative, radical, whatever. People are obsessed with rules. They're like, Mm -hmm. I want a rule that I can follow. If I could just follow the rule that I would only read black trans authors, then I would have done good. And it's like, no, it's the rule that kills the possibility of progress. And it should be really just questions of like, how can I read all of these different people in new ways and be surprised as I incorporate more and new and different things I didn't expect to read across the spectrum including black trans authors and others, right? And I think like really being suspicious of rules and operating more by axioms uh, is how I operate best practices rather than orthodoxies. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing to comment on that because I couldn't if I tried. Um, No, thank you both Derek and Ramsey, both of you, uh, great. Guys, keeping it unreal, on book at like at the bookstores now go grab yourself a copy go to your local bookstore come to skylight you know they'll all have it but yeah no grab grab a copy it's gonna be so much so worth it and thank you again to all my listeners for coming back or joining for the first time and if you are joining for the first time go back and listen to some episodes we've had some really good uh conversations on here with some great authors a lot of uh really great uh graphic novel authors too so if you want to further uh your if you're if you're new to the graphic novel space or comic book space you know there's some great people to listen to but no thank you again for coming back you have a great and beautiful rest of your day and you know see you soon bye Bye. thanks so much Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.